Hosea. And we finished chapter 10 last time. So I will pick it up actually at 10.13 and we'll sort of get a run at 11. Hosea 10.13. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And that's talking about Shalmaneser, who was the king of Assyria at the time. One of the things that is a theme of Hosea is that God has continually blessed Ephraim. Ephraim, the more prosperous it gets, the farther away from God it gets. What he's talking about here is instead of trusting in him, they're trusting in their own way and in the multitude of warriors. That's the fruit of lies, which is to say the lie is that you can get strong enough that you don't need God. So now down to verse 15. I'm still in chapter 10. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. Elsewhere in Hosea it has been called beth Aven, which means house of evil. So here what he's saying is, thus shall it be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. So you have a pun there, if you will. Now down to verse 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. The blessing of Abraham is on Ephraim. You remember the blessing of Abraham starts with Abraham, God to Abraham. Abraham then passes it on to Isaac. And then from Isaac it goes on to Jacob, bypassing Esau, the older son. When Jacob on his deathbed is blessing his sons, he brings Ephraim and Manasseh forward and adopts them. And by adopting them, he elevates them to the same status as the other 11 brothers, okay, which gives uh, Joseph a double portion. He then swaps his hands so that Ephraim, the younger, is favored over Manasseh, the older. So what you have then, if you look at the blessing that Jacob gives to his sons on their deathbed, the blessing of Abraham, which is children and fruitfulness, goes to Ephraim. God has basically done everything for Ephraim. And the more that he has done, the more Ephraim keeps turning to idols. Glory to idols instead of the God who is actually prospering it. But I want to go down to verse 4 again now. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Paul talks about this, I think, in Romans. Everybody serves somebody. So you can either serve idols or you can serve God. But nobody's free. And Paul talks about it in terms of passions and lusts. In other words, you either serve the flesh or you serve God. People get nervous serving God because God doesn't require very much of them. 
doing what God wants you to do is in fact easy, and you sort of say, is this all there is to it? Shouldn't I be out there sacrificing my firstborn? Shouldn't I be doing this, that, or the other thing? Isn't there something more that I got to do in order to be right with this God? And one of the things that idols do is they present you with these big lists of things that you got to do in order to be right with the idol. And that's very satisfying to people because it gives you the idea that you're doing something in this relationship. Whereas in your relationship with God, all he wants to do is have you obey what he's told you, which is not hard, and have a worship relationship with him. Other than that, there isn't a whole lot involved as far as doing stuff with following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as I say, that makes people nervous. So for example, Leonard of the Galatians. Paul goes to the, to the people of Galatia and he establishes a church there and he says, hey, you're free from all this pagan stuff, worship God. Paul leaves town and 20 minutes later, a bunch of Jews with a briefcase and a three-day pass show up and say, yeah, 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 I know that's what Paul said, but you really got to do all this other stuff. And the Galatians are saying, oh, yeah, now we, I mean, there's stuff we got to do. We got to, you know, we got to work at this relationship with our God. You know, we got to get a screwdriver out. We got to make stuff and we got to do, you know, we're all, we're all that way. We really are. And Paul writes back to him and says, you stupid Galatians, you started in the grace of God and now you want to get involved in religious works to elevate yourself in your eyes to make yourself seem like you're more holy and you're doing better and you're working harder for God and so you're better and so forth. But God doesn't want any of that stuff. He just wants a worship relationship with you. One of the things that Hosea is saying here is when Israel got taken out of Egypt, their yoke was broken. They no longer served the Egyptians. Anybody ever walked a long time with a heavy pack and then taken the pack off and walked and you feel like you got springs in your feet? And so what happens then is these false religions come along and they pander to your need to carry something. And so what God is saying here of Ephraim is I took their yoke off and they turned right around and put a yoke on. One that I didn't tell them to to take. You understand what's being said here? And that's the way God wants it. He wants a worship relationship with you. He doesn't want you being busy carrying unnecessary burdens in the belief that those burdens are somehow going to make you more holy. The thing that's happened with Ephraim, which is he's talking about, is Ephraim starts walking with God. God prospers Ephraim. Basically, Ephraim gets bored and starts messing around with other stuff. As I say, it's human nature to think that there has to be more to this religion stuff than what God requires. It's something that wells up inside of us and we feel like, God, there's got to be more. I've got to be doing more stuff. And the laws simply define what doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God looks like. That's what they are. And they're to enhance life. So now we're all the way down to verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me, 
The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people have bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. When Israel gets in trouble, it, it's sort of like 911. 911 for about six months afterwards, the churches were all full. People flocked back to the church. It didn't last. Because what they were doing is they were running to what they thought was a place of refuge with no intention of changing. And so what God is saying here is they're going to call on me, but they're going to call on me in their distress, and they're going to call on me with no intention of changing. And I'm going to listen to them. Verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Adma and Zeboim are cities of the valley that are around Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. What this is, is a lament of God over Ephraim because God still loves Ephraim. So this, how can I give you up? He still loves Ephraim despite everything that Ephraim has done. And despite the fact that for Ephraim's own good, he has decided to send him into exile. One of the things that I have said lots of times, but I haven't said recently, so I'll say it again. Exile is therapeutic. It is not punitive. Now, going into exile is really traumatic. So when you go into exile, it's a rough process. But the idea is not to destroy. It is to send you to a place where your faults can be corrected. So exile is always to the place that personifies what it is that gets you sent into exile. For example, when Judah goes into exile to Babylon, Babylon is idol central. So when Judah falls into idolatry, God sends them to idol central. You guys want idols? We'll do idols. And when they came out of Babylon, the impulse to idolatry was gone. They got sent back into exile by the Romans. The reason they got sent into exile by the Romans was because of baseless hatred. They couldn't get along. Too many scorpions in one bottle. And so God says, fine. You want baseless hatred? We'll do baseless hatred for 2,000 years. And you've got pogroms. You've got mass expulsions. You've got the Holocaust. All of that is baseless hatred to show Israel, you guys want to do baseless hatred? We'll do baseless hatred for a while. So exile is therapeutic. So what God has decided is for Ephraim's own good, they are going into exile, but it's breaking his heart. That's what's happening in verse 8. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. I believe this is a reference to the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is a reference to the greater Exodus. Because we're talking in terms of Ephraim. And remember, Ephraim, when they went into exile, disappeared. Judah did not. Judah, when they went into exile, stayed cohesive. They remained a people, came out of exile as a people, went back into exile into the Romans as a people, and they are still recognizable as a people today. Ephraim is not. They're gone. 
or at least to us they are gone. And so what God is saying here is when the lion roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So I believe that this is a, a prophecy of the second coming of Messiah. Verse 12, If Priam has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. This goes back to the riff that I was talking about earlier. What are the lies that Ephraim has surrounded God with? That there's more to being religious than just the stuff that the Torah asks you to do. That's a lie. It isn't true. They still believe in God. When things get bad, they're still going to go back to the temple. Actually not. They're going to go back to the golden calf, but you get the idea. The idea is that they still nominally worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they have surrounded him with lies. They have surrounded him with these layers of religious stuff that they think they have to do in order to be religious. And God says, when you stood at the foot of the mountain, you didn't see an image. All you saw was the mountain burning with smoke and fire. There was no image there. Therefore, you do not worship me through images. So when Ephraim surrounds God with lies, what he has done, Ephraim has done, is set up intermediaries between himself and God, whether those intermediaries be Baals or whether they be idols, like the golden calves were idols. Remember, the golden calf was an idol to Jehovah. It was a worship thing to Jehovah. It was not to Baal or any of the other pagan gods. It was specifically directed at Jehovah. And Jehovah says, wait a minute, no, don't do that. That's not the we're doing thing. So this idea here that Ephraim has surrounded him with lies, I believe, is in that spirit. Because they have not lost track of the fact of who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. You know, if you would go to somebody in Ephraim and you say, who is Jehovah, they'd be able to tell you the Most High God. But what are you doing with all this other stuff? Oh, well, that's just intermediaries. All the way down to chapter 12 now. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Everybody understand the east wind. The east wind is judgment. Whenever God deals in a starchy way with anybody, it's talked of in terms of the east wind. So an east wind brings judgment. So what it's saying is Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. In other words, the things that he is doing are east wind magnets. He's doing all this stuff, and by doing all this stuff, he is inviting the east wind to come upon him. And the east wind is the thing that sweeps everything away in front of it in judgment. Okay, And then they multiply falsehood and violence. And they make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Oil carried to Egypt is a tribute. What they're trying to do is buy allies. So these covenants with Egypt and Assyria are intended to protect them in a worldly sense. Verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah, and I will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to all his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. 
and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, Jehovah is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. This is directed at Judah. Because remember, we just said in chapter 11, verse 12, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God. Then we have the business of Ephraim feeding on the wind, and now we have God speaking to Judah, and he is recounting, if you will, the history of Jacob and how he met God, and down to verse 6, So you, Judah, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So what he's saying is Ephraim is about to be taken out. You guys need to hold fast. And he does that by reciting their history and saying, this is where you came from, and you need to hold fast and wait on your God, which is to say, Jehovah. Okay? And in fact... They last more than another century before they're taken out by the Babylonians. Verse 7, A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. What that is saying is, is Ephraim is a cheater. He is a merchant that uses false balances, in other words, dishonest weights and measures. And not only that, he's really clever at it. And he says, I am rich. And there isn't any way that they are going to either A, find out that I am cheating them, or B, if they do find out that I am cheating them, I am so rich that I can buy lawyers to suppress them and get myself out of trouble. And so the corollary to that is, okay, big guy, you are, in fact, going to be brought to justice. Verse 9, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I am going to take you out of Israel and into the wilderness, where I can get your attention. Verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps in the furrows of the field. Gilead and Gilgal are both places in Ephraim, the northern kingdom, Israel. Gilead is on the east bank of the Jordan, approximately opposite the Sea of Galilee. Gilgal is on the west bank of the Jordan, down in the valley near Jericho. But they are both cities in Ephraim. Verse 12. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim was given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him, and he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. The idea there is Jacob fled to the land of Aram, Haran, which is where he served with Laban, and he served for a wife, and he was a shepherd for a wife. And then a prophet, Moses, brought Israel out of Egypt, and a prophet guarded Israel. And then in 14, Ephraim has given bitter provocation. 
So the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Now remember we started this just a few minutes ago about him being a merchant who does false balances. And he is, as somebody said out here, too big to fail. Well, he's not too big for God to fail. And that's what's being said here. 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. So when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. What we're talking about is Ephraim being powerful. So when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Priam has died, which is to say they have turned away from God, and even though the body is still walking, it's dead. There is no life in it anymore. And they use all this wealth that they have garnered, especially silver, to make idols. And then those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. That very well may be a reference to the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. So the idea is that what has devolved over the years is those who kiss calves, in other words, those who worship these golden calves, in fact also offer human sacrifice. Verse 3, therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a wind. Remember, we've talked about the east wind. All of these things are images of stuff that is scattered and blown away by the wind. So they will be like the morning mist. They will be like chaff on the threshing floor. They will be like smoke from a window. All of those things are going to be dispersed by this east wind that is coming. Verse 4. But I am Jehovah your God, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will work beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Reprise of what we've been saying all along. The more they got blessed, the more they got physical prosperity, the farther away they got from God and they forgot Him. And again, one of the things we all do is we tend to pay more attention to people with skin on than we do with God. There's always this thing in the back of your mind is I, I can always square it with God. He'll understand. I'll come around tomorrow and I'll repent. And he'll understand. It'll be okay. And what God is saying here is there comes a point where that's no longer true. Verse 9. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. You all remember the story in Samuel 
where Israel wants to be like all the other nations and have a king. And Samuel says, bad idea. God says, bad idea, but that's what they want, let them do it. So he gave them a king in his anger. In other words, he was not happy that they asked for a king, but he let them have one because that's what they want. And now, in his wrath, he is taking that king away so that their secular government is going to be ineffective in defending Verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Ephraim is not doing what's natural. It's natural for Ephraim is to follow God. 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So the answer there is no. I will not do that. And of course you all know that this is quoted again in the New Testament. In a different context. So when it's quoted in the New Testament, it's talking about the risen Messiah. And now that passage becomes... Hey, death, where's your sting? It's gone. Here, it is not that way at all. Because here, compassion is hidden from his eyes, from God's eyes. In other words, God is not going to take the sting out of death for them. 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountains shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. This east wind that we've been talking about will sweep everything away. 16. Samaria will bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. Chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. It is still a call to repentance. And when it says we will repay the vows of our lips, in other words, you, you make a vow to God and you pay it, Assyria will not save them. In other words, we talked earlier about attempting to make treaties with Assyria. We will not ride on horses. Horses are an instrument of war. So the idea of riding on horses indicates that your army is going to save you. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. We will stop worshiping idols, which are the work of our hands. And then in you, the orphan finds mercy. And I will suggest... I just thought of this, and this is genealogy, and it may not be true. Ephraim has just been orphaned. We won't worship idols. We won't go to Assyria. We won't trust in the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. In other words, I am coming to you as an orphan. What's being said here is we won't worship the work of our hands. We won't trust in our soldiers. We won't trust in alliances with foreign powers. We will pay the vows of our lips. In other words, we will return to you. And then in you, the orphan finds mercy. And what I'm suggesting is the business with lo-ami, not a people, 
one of the children of Hosea is talking about the orphaning of Ephraim. Verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. When I bring them back, this is how it's going to be. Understand that this is one of the foundations of two-house theology. You all know that there's two perspectives in Messianic Judaism, one and two-house. Typically, congregations that are run by ethnic Jews tend to be one house, which is to say, Ephraim is gone, we're all that's left, you Gentiles are welcome to come in, but you're just Gentiles. Glad to have you, we're not mad at you, but you're different. Two-house theology is, Judah has been out there all these years, but Ephraim has not been lost. God knows where Ephraim is. And this is one of the places that people who are of a two-house persuasion will come to bolster their argument. Because in Hosea, Ephraim is about to be scattered forever. They've been gone now for something like 2,700 years. And what God is saying here is they are coming back. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the wine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answers and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The book ends on a note of hope. And as we said before, Ephraim has been gone for something like 2,700 years. Nobody knows who Ephraim is, although Israel has been finding Benai Manasseh, sons of Manasseh. And they've been finding them all across Asia and all the way down to Thailand. There are groups of people that keep Torah. Many of them are Muslims and pagans. They have no idea. But they still slaughter kosher. They still do everything that the Torah commands as far as their lifestyle. have no idea why. So God has not lost these people. That He knows. And he has said here at the end of the book that he will bring them back. With that, would somebody close in prayer?